Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon and welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And our guest this week is Mike Rothschild. Mike has been writing about conspiracy theories for a very long time, and in recent years has emerged as one of the world's number one QAnon watchers. To that end, he's just published a book, The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me. When did you first realize that QAnon was a problem? (laughs) Well, early on, I kind of thought it was a joke. Uh, I started seeing these tweets in about uh, maybe January of 2018, so just a few months after the first Q drops, talking about how John McCain and Hillary Clinton were wearing orthopedic walking boots, not because they'd injured their feet like the rest of us mere mortals, but because they had secretly been arrested in a, in a purge called the Storm, and the walking boots were, were to hide their ankle tracking bracelets. I thought that was amazing, and I needed to just run down every single aspect of that whole conspiracy theory that I could. But pretty early on, I realized that it had some very similar tenets to these affinity frauds that I'd written about, these things I talk about in the book, the Iraqi dinar scam, this thing called Nasara. These are these long-running, intel-driven scams where there's a guru at the center of it who has this secret knowledge of a great event that's about to happen, and the guru is the only one who has access to the information, and they are sharing it with you you know, for a price, of course, so that you can invest in whatever they're selling, or you can buy whatever this worthless currency is, and you too can be rich, and everything will be great. QAnon had all of the the intel and all of the secret knowledge, but it wasn't about a great financial windfall. It was about how good you would feel when your enemies were brought to justice and hanged for their crimes. And I realized that that was really troubling, certainly because of the violence, but also because it was something that you could keep going without any kind of illegality. These things like the Dinar scam and Nasara, they're basically frauds. I mean, they, they revolve around selling worthless investments. And a lot of people involved in Nasara and the Dinar have gone to prison. But with QAnon, you could keep this going forever. And all you're doing is just posting crap in code on 4chan. You're not doing anything illegal. So that's when I really started to get a little bit freaked out by it. I guess they were going along without doing anything illegal until uh, they're talking about hanging all of their enemies turned to showing up at uh, the Capitol with rope. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's only so long that you can talk about the apocalypse before you get sick of waiting around for it. But one of the things that really distinguished QAnon from a lot of these other things was that this very quickly jumped into the real world. 
uh, a lot of these other things, you know, like Nasara, that was a very, very small group of people online. They, they were kind of outsized in their volume, but they everything they did stayed online and they didn't really get involved in, in day-to-day stuff. But with QAnon, you very quickly, within about a year of the drops first appearing, you started to have crimes. You had the incident on Hoover Dam where this guy got into his homemade armored truck with 900 rounds of ammunition and two firearms and drove to Hoover Dam and set up a blockade basically and was demanding that Donald Trump release the real inspector general report. That was based on a Q drop about a supposedly real unredacted inspector general report of the intelligence community that would blow the lid off of the FBI's corruption and how the deep state had tried to keep Trump from winning the presidency and how the leakers were damaging him and all of this was going to come out. And this guy was asking Trump to do this based on a Q drop. Then you, you started to have murders. You started to have child kidnappings. This wasn't just people shoveling money into a worthless investment. This was people grabbing their firearms and killing. One of the sort of weirder crimes was the, the killing of the mob boss. I think that uh, QAnon, for the people that are affected by it, it can be just perplexing when you're on the outside and you don't know what's going on. Do, just as an aside, do you have any idea what the mafia made of that incident? I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not a mafia watcher. And, you know, the, the, the mafia is so far past its glory days that I'm sure that they were just happy that somebody was writing about them. But this guy, Frank Cowley, who was shot dead, he was very under the radar. I'd never heard of him. I, you know, I, you know, he wasn't like a John Gotti type. This, this was not a flamboyant guy. This is just somebody who lived on Staten Island and was, you know, involved in some under the radar illegal activities. He wasn't part of the deep state. You know, Trump had no link to him, but this guy who shot and killed him, uh, Anthony Camello, became obsessed with the idea of enacting citizens' arrests against the deep state. And apparently, he had already tried to do one to Maxine Waters, who's a congresswoman from California. That really never went anywhere. He talked about, I think, maybe trying to arrest some other people, but he he ran his car into Frank Kelly's parked car to arrest him. And then of course, you know, Callie starts yelling at him and he gets shot in the face for his trouble. But this really came out of nowhere. Q never talked about the mafia. This this wasn't something that people connected with this world. It was very out of left field. And I think the, that's why it got so much attention. Q would appear to be many things to many different people. One of the questions you ask in the book is how best to understand it. Is it a movement, a cult? Uh, a conspiracy theory, and so on. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the different approaches you took to addressing the question of Q and arriving at a better understanding of it. Sure. I really tried to look at QAnon as a bunch of different parts that add up to something different for all of the people who believe it. It absolutely has elements of a cult to it, but I don't think it's quite so easy to just say it's a cult and write off all of the people who believe it. You know, even the cult experts I talked to for the book were really confused on what exactly this was. It certainly has the sort of in-group versus out-group dynamic of a cult. It has the, you know, fear of the outside world that a cult has, but it doesn't have a charismatic leader. It doesn't have that figure at the very top whose word is bond. You know, Q would, would make drops where they would say things like disinformation is necessary. I'm going to lie to you, essentially, is what Q was saying. I'm going to lie to you, and it's okay. It's part of this this war that we're fighting together. With Q, it was always about togetherness. It wasn't, I am your leader. It was, we are all our own leaders. We are all this movement. We are Q together. So in that sense, it's not so much a cult, even though it really looks like it. It has aspects of being a new religion, but it doesn't 
really, you know, give you a deity to worship. It's very evangelical Christian in that way. It feels like a mass movement, but it's very fragmented. It has no, there's no unity in it. A lot of QAnon believers will argue with each other about, you know, doctrine and about who's making money off of it. It's very fragmented. And what I wanted to do was kind of track down where all of those parts came from and how they all fit together. And it's still really difficult to give a really comprehensive answer to what Q is, because what Q is really depends on what you want out of it. In terms of its status as a cult and, I guess, religiosity in the United States in particular, it seems that um, there's a substantial base for support among uh, evangelical Republicans and others with regards to Q. What do you, in terms of its cultish nature or its um, appeal to people of uh, religious faith, what do you think that says about Q and, and QAnon? I think it says that the person who started writing the drops, while having no real plan for it, really understood the tropes of evangelical culture and really understood how to get through to these people in a way that I think a lot of conservatives don't. But I think Donald Trump really did understand. You know, you can say a lot about Trump, but he knew how to talk to people. He knew what to say to get through to the audience that he was trying to bring over to his particular brand of conservatism. So, you know, Q would, would sort of throw out these, these ridiculous accusations, but say things like, well, you know, you need to find out for yourself. You need to do your research. So it wasn't like they were a, a God figure telling you what to do. It was very much of a, we're in this together. We are a community. We're going to solve these problems ourselves and we're going to do it without the government. We're going to do it without the mass media because they're all infiltrated by the deep state. We are our own community. And there is that kind of walled off nature that you, I think you've seen a lot of evangelical communities of like, they don't understand us. You know, they deride our way of life. They mock us. They want to cancel us is what you would say now. Q is very, very good at tapping into that. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, well, I guess mm-hmm. this whole thing is speaking of Donald Trump, but, uh, you know, in the age of the polished politician, it sort of seems hard to conceive of uh, someone, a politician saying anything that hasn't, you know, been through five focus groups and 10 media advisors. It was sort of controversial when Donald Trump addressed the QAnon question. I was wondering, do you think that he knew what he was talking about when he said the things that he said about Q? <laughs> you know, I, I never try to assume that Donald Trump knows anything about anything because I feel like that always leads to disappointment. But I do think that by that point, Trump knew what this was. He knew what these people believed. I don't know how much of that he found on his own. I don't know how much of that was put in front of him by his social media team. I think his his inner circle knew what this was very early on. And they knew clearly how to exploit it, what to say, you know, what to post on social media, what would rile these people up and feed their beliefs that there was this secret war going on. And part of this secret war was the comms being exchanged by the deep state using, you know, pictures of dogs and corn and codes. And so that, you know, you started having people talking about the codes and Trump's typos on Twitter. And so I think that his inner circle really did understand it. And I think eventually they kind of told Trump, well, here's what you need to know about this. These people love you. They worship you. This is what you believe. And I'm sure there was something in his head that went like, oh, they want to fight pedophiles. Those are my people. I, I want to fight pedophiles. I mean, never mind that that's nonsense. He, he really, I think, understood that the, the mythology to him meant nothing, but they loved him. And so that was all. That on, a, on a similar thread, uh, Michael Flynn embraced the QAnon meme much more thoroughly. Do you think that he was fully aware of what he was getting into when he jumped in? And could you speak a little bit about you know what his involvement was? 
Sure. Michael Flynn is a revered figure in QAnon. He is, he is worshipped with a reverence that really is only reserved for Q and God and Trump. They think he is a hero who faked his own crimes so that he could be fake arrested by the FBI and go undercover in the Mueller investigation to root out all of the corruption and all of the evil there and then that all of it would be exposed and that Flynn would be exonerated. Well, everybody kind of knew that Flynn was going to be exonerated, not because he had done nothing wrong. He quite clearly did something wrong, but because Trump was going to pardon him. You know, everybody kind of knew that was coming and we all were prepared for it. But I think in terms of does Flynn think this is real? You know, I always hesitate to to take a guess as to whether somebody thinks Q is real or not. I think a lot of people do think it's real. But I think what Flynn really found is that he found a group of people who would financially support him. And I think that's a really important thing to think about with any influential Republican who gets involved with QAnon. There is always a financial aspect to it. Michael Flynn had $5 million in legal bills. He had to sell his house to pay his lawyers. Now, Trump wasn't paying for his lawyers. Trump, you know, pardoned him at the end, but there was no, you know, Trump wasn't giving Flynn the reward that Flynn felt like he deserved. So he found these QAnon people who would buy his merchandise, who would pay to see him speak at QAnon events. I really think it's that simple. I know there's a, a tendency to kind of overcomplicate QAnon, especially on the left, to you know make it this giant web of conspiracy of all these these high level people on the right who are doing this together to run like a military psyop on America. I think a lot of them just really like to be adored and they really want money. And QAnon people are full of money and adoration. In terms of the participatory nature of Q, obviously there's lots of things for people to do when they uh, join or begin to pay attention. Did you find that in the process of writing the book, and I guess more generally in your reportage, that you two were drawn into this rabbit hole as a matter of fascination with you know understanding and, and arriving at an idea about what's actually going on? Yeah, QAnon, it, it has a lot of busy work. It has a lot of decoding and making memes and, and, you know, making message board threads. There's a lot to do to keep people busy finding the codes and communications. And I always found it really fascinating and, and really sad when something would happen. Something really anodyne would happen. Like somebody would post a picture of their dog and say their dog died. You know, it's a sad thing. And these Q people would immediately start ripping it apart to find what it actually meant. Like you get deep, so deep into QAnon that nothing means what it's supposed to mean anymore. Everything has hidden meaning. Everything is part of the, the war and the communications. It's a really exhausting and kind of deadening way to live. And what you find is that a lot of these people talk about how they are giving up the things they used to love. They are pushing their friends and family away. They can't watch sports anymore. They can't listen to the bands that they used to love because everything is shot through with this you know, trafficking rings, deep state, secret war, every, you become so on alert all the time that you can never relax to just enjoy something in your life. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Mike Rothschild about QAnon. One of the things I've, I've noticed in, in terms of the local um, manifestation of QAnon is um, despite the many failed predictions and false claims that have been made or um, produced in, in Q-drops, the, the engagement, you know, uh, does, that doesn't seem to really impact upon its appeal. And you've said it's it's kind of um, sad to see people use their mental energies to try and, you know, interpret and reinterpret all these this system of, of signs and, and so on. But the other thing I've noticed is that there's 
this kind of wealth of creativity where it doesn't really matter what happens in the real world or in the virtual world. There's this constant adaptation. And part of the, the task of the more, I guess, committed member seems to be uh, feeding everything through this kind of system of translation that just results in more and more material for Q. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Everything that happens in the world, you know, whether it's a plane crash, a CEO resignation, a celebrity death, you know, a minor election somewhere, it all gets fed into this machine that turns it into part of this conspiracy. There's a great story. And one of the times when the drops really were quite creative is, and I want to say that this was in maybe late summer or early fall of 2018. I don't remember off the top of my head, but somebody had a weather camera set up on a small island in Puget Sound, Washington. And they caught a, a still photo at a sort of high, uh, high shutter speed of an air ambulance uh, flying through the night. And they, they got a screenshot of a, of a searchlight and it looked like a missile being fired. You know, if, if you, you know, don't really know much about missiles and you just have seen them on TV, it looks like what you think a missile looks like. This was a, right around the time when Trump was going to Singapore to have the summit with Kim Jong-un. So Q posted this picture and hinted that this missile had been fired from a submarine in Puget Sound trying to shoot down Air Force One as it was on its way to Singapore. And it and then uh, subsequent drops added in the idea that this missile was shot down by F-16s using secret technology and that Michael Avenatti, the uh, lawyer who, who is actually going to prison now, accidentally leaked it because he posted a screen grab from the movie Top Gun. <laughs> so... This this was a really really creative story. I mean, this it's it's totally outlandish. It's the kind of thing that you would see in a you know in a techno thriller. Now, never mind the fact that submarine launched anti aircraft missiles don't actually work and nobody uses them. And also, if you fire a missile in Puget Sound, which is a really really heavily populated area, somebody's probably going to see it and hear it. And even if it's destroyed, the parts are going to come down somewhere. There's going to be some footprint of it. And also, Air Force One was flying in the wrong direction from where this missile was fired. Never mind any of that. The Q believers really thought that the deep state had a submarine, that this submarine had secret anti-aircraft missile technology. They fired a missile at Air Force One, and the, the Trump team, using equally secret technology, shot it down, and nobody would have known except if this weather camera hadn't gotten this one picture of it. It's really creative. It's just a shame that it's wasted on this, you know, horribly violent anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Speaking of uh, anti-Semitism, Mike, can you explain why anti-Semitism is present within QAnon? Sure. Anti-Semitism is present in every conspiracy theory. I mean, that's really what so many conspiracy theories eventually boil down to. It's the Jews are running things and we're going to stop them or the Jews are running things and here's all of the things that they've done to us good Christians. You know, you, every one of these conspiracy, conspiracy theories eventually trends back to anti-Semitism. And with Q, you're spinning this idea of a secret war between good and evil. Well, what's more evil and secretive than the wealthy Jewish string pullers who are running the world. So you would get all of these Q drops that would make references to George Soros. I think Q drop number two references George Soros. You get references to the Rothschild banking family, who I am not related to, by the way. <laughs> um, you, uh, yes. 
you get all of these these tropes and and canards and very old ideas you know the things like the blood libel that's really what this idea of adrenochrome is you know the the uh, adre- oxidized adrenaline extracted from terrified kidnapped children who are being sex murdered all of that stuff comes from anti-semitic tropes none of this stuff is new q didn't invent any of this 4chan didn't invent any of this this has all been part of our culture for centuries millennia Q just repurposed it in a more in a much more participatory way, and then of course denied being anti-Semitic whatsoever, saying, "Oh, you know, they think we're you know they want us divided. Patriotism has no skin color. All of these kind of you know little lip service things to not being racist when in fact you are incredibly racist." But yeah, anti-Semitism is just an easy draw for conspiracy theories like QAnon. I didn't think you were part of the Rothschild banking family, mainly because uh, I sort of figured someone with access to the Rothschild billions probably wouldn't uh, be writing about conspiracy theories. They might just be yeah, relaxing yeah, on the beach. I would, yeah, peop- I, get this, I get this all the time on Twitter. Like, oh, Roth- of course the Rothschild would say that. Oh, oh, well, you, why don't you use your family's money for some good? And I'm like, if, if I were that wealthy, I wouldn't know what Twitter was. I would have no, I would not work. I would live on a yacht. I would count my bottles of wine. I would just be a millionaire playboy and you would, and you would have no idea who I was. So yeah, it, it's, and that of course usually sends them running or they block me. That's, it sounds like the perfect cover, Mike. Well, sure. It, it, it really would only be better if I took the name Mike Soros. <laughs> I have to admit, I felt a swell of patriotism when I read in the book that Australia had the fourth highest uh, QAnon social media traffic in Yes, yes, it's very, yeah, it's very, very popular in, in Australia. I just, uh, I just finished another interview with uh, Australian TV. It's a very, it's a very big deal there. And I know it's, it's really caught up with your prime minister and the, the ritual abuse stuff, um, you know, which is really troubling that somebody who has these beliefs could get access to your leader. I mean, that's like, we have Q believers who have had, who've gotten access to Donald Trump, but they have not, you know, they've not influenced something as serious as an apology for systemic abuse. I mean, a lot of it is just like Trump just talking out of his ass, which is what he would be doing anyway. I was curious, does Australia feature at all in any of the Q drops? You know, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Q, you know, Q is so U.S. centric. You know, a lot of it really revolved around the minutia of American politics and like the midterm elections and the Supreme Court and the Senate, which is why it kind of surprised me that it took off so much in other countries. You know, you're looking at this, you're like, you would need to have a really pretty, you know, pretty detailed knowledge of American politics for this to mean anything to you. But the people who have embraced QAnon in other countries have kind of discarded the parts of it that don't fit their own political climate or their own culture and really run with the parts of it that do. So you get in, in England, you get these, uh, you know, anti-lockdown marches, which, which really dovetails with Q, especially during the pandemic. In France, it got really tied up with the yellow vest movement, which is both kind of a far left and a far right movement. In Germany, it's been completely embraced by the far right. In Japan, there's a big QAnon contingent that really worships Michael Flynn. I have absolutely no idea why anybody would worship him, but they love him in Japan. Uh, and yeah, in Australia, it got really tied up with this uh, ritual abuse idea, you know, this, this idea of this systemic sex trafficking, which is not mentioned quite as much in, all, in some other countries. 
and isn't really a big that big of a part of QAnon in general here, but it's big over there. You know, Q never talked about Save the Children or Adrenochrome. Those things never showed up in Q drops. Those came from people who were sort of big promoters of the movement and gurus in the movement who were kind of pushing it their own direction. I noticed that our local gurus are still going on about the tunnels and uh, the deep underground military bases. Uh, has the uh, Obviously, Q hasn't posted for a while, but like, uh, have the big names in the States and elsewhere, are they still going on about the tunnels or are we just a, a little bit retro down here? You know, it's interesting. The, the Q is so directionless right now that the every guru kind of has their own little spin on it. Some of them are really into the, the ideas of the tunnels and the, the trafficking. And, you know, they were really all over the, the whole Wayfarer conspiracy theory. And then a couple of months ago, when the big container ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, they were pushing conspiracy theories that the containers were full of trafficked children. And then other big QAnon gurus only talk about the election. You know, you've got QAnon gurus that are only talking about the the audit in Maricopa County, Arizona, and how that's going to, you know, throw over the whole thing and knock all the dominoes down and get Trump back into office. So it's it's really a movement that has no direction and no leadership, and it's going in whatever direction, whatever guru you happen to be reading is taking it in. So one of the more alarming features of QAnon is the fact that I guess the secondary waves of people who've been attracted to it and expressed an interest and even embraced it is, to begin with, many are absorbing elements of QAnon without actually realising that they're doing so. So what can you say to the idea that there's you know, particular features of QAnon that are in actually quite wide circulation and these function in order to kind of channel people towards, uh, the, the, I guess, the more core elements of QAnon? Yeah, Q, one of the last major Q drops just a couple of weeks before the election was this idea that uh, the the branding of QAnon needed to be discarded and you, you need to stop talking about Q in public because you're going to get banned off social media. And Q made a drop that said, there is Q, there are Anons, there is no QAnon. So basically what this was, was erasing the idea that this movement called QAnon ever existed in the first place, that there were these drops and there were the people who decoded these drops, but they weren't a movement. They didn't have a name. They didn't have an organized belief. The media made all of that up. All of that is just the the deep state mockingbird media trying to make truth seekers and conspiracy researchers look crazy. Now, that is ridiculous. The term QAnon comes from 4chan. I talk about this in the book. There is an Anon who's actually from Canada who used the term QAnon to to refer to the person who was making the drops really very early on within the first week when they were still calling them uh, like info dump Anon and some other names that were never going to stick. Um, but that term was used all the time in, in Q world. You had, you know, merchandise with QAnon on it. You had the, the book that came out in March of 2019, this book called QAnon, an invitation to the great awakening that got uh, thousands of five-star reviews and was the number two book on all of Amazon the week it came out. That name was everywhere. People used it all the time. And then out of nowhere, the Q poster decides we never used that name. That that wasn't us. That doesn't exist. And everybody just went along with it. Now, if I tweet something about QAnon, I get dozens of replies of like, oh, I know you don't know what you're talking about because there is no there is no such thing as QAnon. And it's it's been fascinating to watch these people rewrite the history of their own movement on the fly. And it, it really shows the power that somebody could have if they seized control of this movement. And at this point, just no one's done it yet. 
What a shame we don't live in the alternate universe where it's called dumping on. <laughs> yeah, probably wouldn't have, uh, have uh, looked quite so snazzy on a T-shirt or a uh, you know metal sculpture dumping on. <laughs> to what extent do you think big tech and the, the social media platforms are responsible for the promotion of QAnon? They are enormously responsible. Reddit did the right thing in August of 2018 when they banned QAnon altogether. There was an incident on the big Q uh, subreddit r slash great awakening where uh, Q believers doxed the wrong guy for a mass shooting. Now, fortunately, nothing happened. This this guy didn't get hurt. But Reddit said basically, we're not going to have a repeat of the whole Boston Marathon bombing thing, where you know redditors were going back and forth doxing people who they thought had done it. They just banned QAnon, and it took until after the January sixth insurrection for Twitter and Facebook to finally catch on to how violent and dangerous this movement was and ban it wholesale. Before then, they'd done some cracking down, like Twitter had kicked off a bunch of big Q promoters. They all they all snuck back on. They all created ban invasion accounts and kept sneaking back on. But it really wasn't until after the insurrection that these social media platforms realized they had to do something about this. And they had to live with the idea that the far right might think that they were practicing uh, overly heavy-handed censorship and ban some people and ban these hashtags and kick this stuff off their platforms for good. And the fact that it took them that long to do it, I I think gives them enormous complicity in the growth of this movement. Um, Mike, many of the people who've committed uh, violent acts, uh, seemingly inspired by QAnon, seem also to have experienced some degree of uh, trauma in their lives. And that also seems to be the case of many people who are uh, attracted to QAnon. There's, there's this sense of um, being wounded, of seeking some kind of understanding, perhaps even some sense of justice. W- what do you think it says that QAnon has, has flourished in the United States and elsewhere where there is uh, a degree of political and social trauma? What do you think QAnon offers people who are suffering? Yeah, it offers people hope. And I think that's something that we really don't want to acknowledge, that people get into a, a movement like QAnon not because they are brainwashed or not because they're stupid or not because they're you know drug addicts, but because this is something that offers them answers and offers them a better life and offers them the assurance that the bad people will be punished, the good people will be raised up, and everything will be okay in the end. That's, that's really what draws a lot of people to QAnon. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that there are people who are deeply into this world, who are mentally ill. We've seen it many times. You know, we were talking about the the Frank Kelly shooting earlier. The guy who shot him, Anthony Camello, was found not capable of standing trial because of mental illness. Another one of the QAnon murders was the same way. The the guy who ran his brother through the head with a sword was um, mentally incompetent to stand trial. So there is definitely an element of mental illness and and in some cases an element of actual physical trauma. But I think for a lot of people, they, they aren't, mentally ill. They believe that they have found something that speaks to them, that that gives them a lifeline and lets them know that they're not crazy, that the world is changing in a negative way. And the, these are people who are going to do something about it and who agree with them. So for a lot of the people who, who come into this, it, it really gives them a sense that things will be better one day. And that's very compelling. And that's very hard to get people out of. Mike, one thing of, that kind of struck me in reading about QAnon, uh, both through your book and, and in other uh, reportage, is the use of the term anonymous, because 
uh, I guess prior to the emergence of QAnon, I associated that with, uh, you know, some kind of quasi social movement that was powered by online networks that also attempted to bring uh, power to account. Can you say anything about the actual term anonymous, what anon means in this particular context? Sure. And it's important to note that the anonymous that we think of with the, the Guy Fox masks and stuff like that, those people actually really hate QAnon, that this is not another version of that. But the term anon is, is really just a, a name for somebody who posts on one of these image boards like 4chan or 8chan. But then also an anon is somebody who is deep into a shadowy world and sending back information about it. So I write in the book about some of the precursors to QAnon, which were these other, uh, you know, anonymous truth tellers. You know, there was FBI Anon, there was uh, White House Insider Anon, there was one called MI5 Anon, who's been around for decades. Um, some of them go by other names, like Highway Patrolman. These are like characters in a in a novel almost. You know, they're they're sort of positing themselves as being secret, you know, secret sharers and telling you know powerful secrets about you know, the, what the terrible people are doing to us, but they don't really go with it very far. They, you know, they'll show up on 4chan, they'll answer some questions, they'll throw out some riddles, and then they'll kind of disappear. What made QAnon different, the, the Anon known as Q different, was that they stuck with it. And that when the initial story that they were telling in those first 150 drops really fizzled out, you know, there was, there was no arrest of Hillary Clinton. There were no riots. There was no national guard called up. Like none of that happened. But what they did was they stuck with the story because they'd gotten a following and they'd gotten a following that none of these other anons had really gotten. And I personally think that that following came from the fact that the first Q drop was claiming exactly when Hillary Clinton would be arrested. And here was this figure who, for three decades in the American right, had done more than anybody else to power conspiracy theories. You know, I, I've said that the far right disliked Bill Clinton, but they hated Hillary Clinton. And so anything that saw Hillary Clinton being brought to justice and then proceeded to give you all of the ways that you would know that it was happening was immediately bound to stand out from these other anons who were kind of just telling stories and having a goof. This one was really committed to their story. And that's really what made this all take off. And they built this community of anonymous patriots who was just like you, who were doing the same thing. So it was very community-based. You've talked in the book about how the, the QAnon thing was embraced by boomers. I think at one point it's referred to as Slender Man for boomers. Yeah. But <laughs> there was also another sort of strange demographic that latched on and uh, created this thing called Pastel QAnon. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us what that's about and what's the sort of demographic makeup of the Q landscape today? Well, that's a great question. The, the, yeah, the boomer thing started uh, in about late December 2017 when two of the very early evangelists behind QAnon, and actually one of the guys who was is posited by some people to actually be the original Q poster, this guy Paul Ferber, they went on InfoWars and went and made a, uh, a call out for retired Americans with military or intelligence experience to join the fight. And then, of course, Q got just completely swamped by retired Americans with military experience. But this pastel QAnon was just a completely different thing. This was not something that was really encouraged by Q drops. This was stuff that grew out of the, the really out of the pandemic that grew out of the save the children hysteria that grew out of the idea that there are, you know, 
800,000 kids go missing in the United States every year from trafficking and no one's doing anything about it and no one is talking about it. This idea got picked up by social media influencers and in particular by a lot of women on Instagram, you know, these yoga influencers, these mommy blogger influencers, these people who had huge audiences, you know, millions of followers and would post about these you know, these things about, you know, trafficking and about, you know, what are they doing to our kids and what's this pandemic really about? But it was always done in like a very gentle, loving, attractive way. Like you would get a sort of cotton candy colored meme about, you know, have you, you know, have you watched your children lately? You know, or this like beautiful picture of a child saying like, don't let her be trafficked or, you know, stuff like that, where it was very much about, finding your truth and and looking for answers and we're going to go on this journey together and we're going to ask questions and shouldn't we be allowed to ask questions what's wrong with that and what what really distinguished this and I think what really made it take off was that this wasn't done on their much more outward facing Instagram pages it was done in their stories their personal pages where they would talk about the things that were really meaningful to them. They weren't selling essential oils with this stuff. They were asking very serious questions about the welfare of children. And I think as the pandemic took hold and everybody was just panicking about what was going to happen next, I think this filled a lot of voids for terrified moms who were suddenly stuck at home with their kids all day. In terms of the political effects of QAnon, Mike, obviously it's it's found a home in the Republicans, but you also think that the mainstream Republicans are in some ways horrified by this development, whereas I, I kind of think that, that QAnon, despite having its, uh, I guess, pernicious effects, uh, seems to provide the Republicans with a potential base going forward. What's the situation of the Republican Party in particular with regards to QAnon in uh, mid-2021? I think at this point, the idea that the Republicans are, you know, horrified by QAnon or appalled by its mythology. I think that was true in the beginning. I think a lot of Republicans really wanted just absolutely nothing to do with this, but they realized that this was a very powerful constituency. You know, these are, these are loyal Republican voters. And the thing that they would do if, if you sort of, you know, poo pooed their beliefs in, in QAnon and the deep state, they, they'll say, well, fine, we'll primary you will make your life a living hell because you're not one of us. You're, you don't represent our conservative values. And a lot of those candidates ran in 2020 in, you know, for, for Congress. Now, most of them didn't win, but obviously we saw that a couple of them did. And now they're starting to run for lower level offices. We're starting to see this real push of QAnon believers not using that term because that term, you know, is verboten and apparently never existed. But people who are espousing the mythology of QAnon, you know, the the deep state, the stolen election, the COVID hoax, all of this stuff, they're now running for school boards. They're running for city council. They're running for like mayor's offices. And these are elections that are not that difficult to win if you really put a lot of effort into it. You know, sometimes you only get, you know, a couple thousand people voting. There's no real media scrutiny. We've become so obsessed with what the White House is doing, what the Senate is doing, what the Supreme Court is doing, that we're not paying attention to our local offices. So I think the state of QAnon in terms of the Republican Party right now is that these ideas have become internalized in this party. They now believe as a matter of course that COVID is a hoax, masks are fake, the vaccine is bad, um, the deep state is real. The election was stolen. This was fringe stuff not that long ago. Now you have Republican senators 
who, when asked, did Joe Biden fairly win the election? They won't just say, yes, he fairly won the election. They'll, they'll give you some word salad of an answer that doesn't really answer the question. So unfortunately, QAnon in mid-2021 is much more so the mainstream GOP than it's ever been before. I guess just finally, this is a conspiracy theory that has uh, caused a lot of damage uh, and has consumed a lot of people. Uh, what's the simple, easy answer for how to fix it all? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! <laughs> if I had a simple, easy answer, uh, I would be—I'd uh, be shouting it from the rooftops. You know, I—I I think that with something like QAnon, the best thing that we can do for it is start to recognize the signs of when somebody's getting pulled into it early on. You know, really monitor somebody's social media because they're not going to be shy about it. QAnon is not a movement of um, proselytizing. But it's very much a movement of uh, outward showing that you are part of this. They will share these stories from these very, very weird conspiracy blogs. They'll use these hashtags. They'll start talking about the things that Q believers talk about, you know, the deep state, the election was stolen. They'll, they'll spend a lot of time talking about like the Maricopa County audit and other audits that are supposed to be going on. And if you see that happening in somebody that you care about, that's the time to step in right away. Take it seriously. Uh, maybe they're just goofing off. Maybe this is just a phase they're in and it's not hurting anybody and you don't really need to be concerned about it. But I think you don't really know that until you really step in and you, and you say, hey, you know, I saw you posted this. What do you really think about this? You're not trying to start an argument online because, you know, arguing online is really the most pointless thing you can do with a conspiracy theory believer. What you're trying to do is see how far into it they've gotten what of this they really believe? What of this do they know about? A lot of people just share this stuff and they don't really know anything about it. They don't know the, you know, the veracity of some of this information. They don't know where it comes from. So I think we can't deal with this as a society because I don't think that's possible. I think everybody's journey into conspiracy theories is a little bit different, but we can deal with this on a one-on-one -on -one basis with the people we care about who we see starting to get sucked into it. Well, Mike, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow Mike, he's on Twitter at RothschildMD, and the book is The Storm is Upon Us and is available in all good bookstores. Thanks mm -hmm. so much. Oh, thank you. Well, that's very interesting, Andy. Yeah, Cam, it's a crazy world, is it not? Indeed. Well, we'll be back next week. See you then. Bye-bye.
Commons Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.